Good afternoon. This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Europe Subcommittee will come to order. I'm pleased to be joined by Ranking Member Ricketts, and we expect other members of not only this subcommittee but the Asia Subcommittee to join periodically, uh, given today's topic. In early 2021, the European Union was on the cusp of signing the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment, stemming from a seven-year negotiation process that would have revolutionized trade between the two trading blocs. Two years later, the European Union has made a significant policy shift on China, crystallized in a speech in March by European Commissioner, Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, who called for diplomatic and economic de-risking, her word, and for Europe to be bolder on China, which has become, and I quote, more repressive at home and more assertive abroad. This policy shift, which closer aligns EU and US policy toward China, is a welcome development. Like the European Union, the United States wants a relationship with the PRC that upholds the international rules-based order that has successfully advanced the global economy and human rights around the world. However, a series of events over the past few years, including the PRC's repression of its Uyghur population in Xinjiang, have made it clear that we cannot compartmentalize our relations with China. We must unite with our allies to protect our economies and our shared values. The urgency to align our approach toward China was made crystal clear when Russia launched an unprovoked and illegal invasion of Ukraine. Xi Jinping's decision to stand shoulder to shoulder with Vladimir Putin and declare that theirs is a partnership with no limits should be of concern to every democracy around the world. Russia's invasion highlighted the urgent need to align our policies closely with our allies, including the EU. China's concerning and aggressive behavior isn't new, but Russia's brutal invasion created an opening, I believe, to work with nations in the Indo-Pacific and beyond who recognize that Taiwan is top of mind for China as it takes notice of our international response to Ukraine. This maligned behavior, along with the wake-up call resulting from COVID-19-related supply chain disruptions, has spurred a growing consensus across the Atlantic, the Pacific, and beyond that we must decrease our dependence on China and hold the PRC accountable for its behavior. Throughout Europe, there are numerous examples of efforts China undertakes to coerce European partners or make strategic investments that undermine European security. China has made aggressive economic overtures to secure 5G contracts for Huawei, threatening to undermine the security infrastructures of EU and NATO allies and ASPERT members. In Montenegro, you can visit a road that was supposed to connect the north and south of the country, but still has not been completed, almost 10 years since the project was signed. That is because of China's debt trap diplomacy that has entrapped Montenegro in its ability to fully fund and complete the project. Perhaps one of the most notable examples is from 2021, when China implemented the equivalent of a trade embargo in response to Lithuania opening a Taiwan representative office in Vilnius. I want to emphasize that to fully understand the threats the United States and the world face from the PRC's increasing aggress aggression, we need qualified and capable ambassadors on the ground around the world competing with Chinese interests 
engaging with our allies and partners, and standing up for America's national security. The EU and our European partners are critical for our own nation's ability to address many elements of China's economic and security agenda. That's why diplomatic coordinating mechanisms such as restarting the U.S.-EU dialogue on China and establishing the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council have been instrumental. In addition to these efforts, the Transatlantic Alliance is prepared to address China's acute security, political, and economic threats. In 2022, for the first time, NATO's strategic concept recognized China as a threat to regional security. This unity of purpose in countering China is critical to protecting, protecting Europe's key infrastructure, including its ports, critical minerals, and telecommunications. I welcome the EU and NATO's efforts to broaden its definition of national security to include critical infrastructure. Now, today we've convened this hearing to foster a deeper understanding of how our European allies and partners view the China challenge, to assess PRC engagement with and intentions with respect to Europe and individual EU member states, to consider vulnerabilities that continue to threaten our collective security, and to explore additional tools and opportunities to harmonize the U.S.-EU policy with respect to the PRC. I look forward to our discussion today and exploring how this Congress can best support these continued efforts. With that, let me turn to the ranking member, Senator Ricketts. Thank you very much, Madam Chairman, and thank you to all of our witnesses for being here today to talk about this incredibly important topic. The past 18 months have been some of the most consequential for Europe in the decades since World War II. When Vladimir Putin launched his illegal war, he started the largest conflict on the continent we've seen since World War II. Europe was largely caught off guard and is handicapped by its dependence on Russian energy. As a result, Europe has been forced to reckon with and recalibrate its approach toward its own security. Through our strategic and coordinated efforts on military and humanitarian support, as well as sanctions, the West has helped Ukraine resist this brutal aggression and repression by a despot. This is demonstrating the power of the transatlantic cooperation. The war in Ukraine has unsurprisingly resulted in the deterioration of Russian-European relations. However, it has also served as an inflection point in Europe's relationship with the People's Republic of China. Throughout Moscow's campaign of aggression, Beijing has opted to consistently provide Putin with economic and diplomatic cover, while turning a blind eye to Russia's atrocities on the Ukrainian people. While tensions between Europe and the People's Republic of China had already been on the rise, this no-limits partnership between Xi Jinping and Putin has finally raised alarms in Europe on the PRC's malign ambitions after years of focusing purely on the economic benefits of Chinese engagement. Encouragingly, leaders like EU, commissioners, uh, EU Commission President von der Leyen have shown that some in Europe are waking up to the threat that the CCP poses. In March, von der Leyen proposed an ambitious course correction for Europe's economic approach towards the PRC, focusing on strengthening the EU's inbound investment screening and export control regulations and a push for a new outbound investment regime. 
Additionally, the EU-China Comprehensive Agreement on Investment has rightfully been put on ice, and that should remain the case. And the EU, along with the United States, is far more focused on economic coercion after the People's Republic of China's restriction of Lithuanian goods as punishment for allowing uh, Taiwan to open a de facto embassy there. Individual countries have also taken matters into their own hands, from Netherlands restricting its semiconductor technology to Ireland shutting down a Chinese overseas police station. These have all been welcome efforts. However, given the divide in Europe on how to address the PRC, it remains to be seen whether it can develop a coherent long-term strategy that delivers bold policy actions at both the EU and member state levels. Over the last eight months, I've been disappointed to see European leaders make visits to Beijing with large business delegations to kiss the ring of Xi Jinping, all in the name of expanding business ties and access to the massive Chinese market. Some, and this includes President Biden as well, believe that rewarding Xi with a more diplomatic engagement and strengthened economic ties is the necessary policy prescription to get him to act responsibly, as well as play a positive role in ending the conflict in Ukraine. This is a grave miscalculation that only serves to strengthen Xi's hand while showcasing a divide within Europe and a lack of confidence across the Atlantic. It is critical that Europe and the U.S. are aligned both on the risks that the CCP poses to our mutual security and what we can do together to address it. Forums like the U.S.-EU Trade and Technology Council, or TTC, can be important for that alignment but only to the extent that they produce tangible results. I was also glad to see that last year's NATO strategic concept cover the threats that the uh, PRC poses to the alliance. Now we need to ask whether the words we put into action. She knows that it is our system of alliances and partnerships that provides us with a distinct advantage over autocratic and authoritarian regimes. And this is fundamental. The single biggest advantage that we have is our system of alliances with countries in Europe and around the world. That is not something that the PRC can replicate. As a result, she will stop at nothing to expand the PRC's malign influence in the continent and leverage economic vulnerabilities to drive a wedge between the U.S. and Europe in pursuit of its strategic goals. We must not allow the PRC to be successful in this endeavor. Let's be clear. There can be nuances in our approaches, but there cannot be an urgency gap between us. Given the PRC's rapidly expanding military, its ambitions to be the world's dominating power by the year 2049, and its increasingly hostile rhetoric and actions towards Taiwan, the time to take serious action to deter the PRC is now, not in five to 10 years. The PRC's challenge is too big for either side of the Atlantic to respond alone. Neither the United States nor Europe want an international order dictated by the People's Republic of China. But whether we live in that order is up to us. It will ultimately come down to the extent of our resolve and our ability to coordinate to meet this challenge head-on together. I look forward to hearing from our panel of witnesses today on how we can strengthen the transatlantic cooperation and work together to combat the CCP's malign influence and aggression. Thank you, Madam Chairman. Thank you very much, Senator Ricketts. Um, let me welcome all of our witnesses and thank you for traveling today to get here. We appreciate it. I'm going to introduce you in 
and ask that we hear your testimony in the order of introduction. I'll begin with you, um, Mr. Barkin. Our first witness today is Noah Barkin, who is a senior advisor with Rhodium Group's China Practice. He's also a visiting senior fellow in the Indo-Pacific program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. His current work focuses on Europe's relations with China, emerging technologies, and the implications of China's rise for the transatlantic relationship. On these topics, Mr. Barkin has written for The Atlantic, The New York Times, Foreign Policy, and Politico, and he's the creator of a popular newsletter called Watching China in Europe. Dr. Janka Ertl is the director of the Asia program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. She previously worked as a senior fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States Berlin office, where she focused on transatlantic China policy, including on emerging technologies, Chinese foreign policy, and security in East Asia. She's published widely on topics related to EU-China relations, U.S.-China relations, security in the Asia-Pacific region, Chinese foreign policy, 5G and emerging technologies, as well as climate cooperation. Thank you. Andrew Small is a senior transatlantic fellow with the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. His research focuses on U.S.-China relations, Europe-China relations, and broader developments in Chinese foreign and economic policy. He's testified before the U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission and both the Foreign Affairs Committee and European Parliament. Andrew is the author of No Limits, the Inside Story of China's War in the, with the West, and the China-Pakistan Axis, Asia's New Geopolitics. Thank you all for being here. I will ask you to begin, Mr. Barkin. Chair Shaheen, uh, Ranking Member Ricketts, distinguished members of the committee, uh, thank you for the opportunity to talk to you today about transatlantic cooperation on China. Europe's relationship with China has been worsening for more than half a decade, mirroring the decline in relations uh, between Washington and Beijing. In past years, European concerns centered around issues of economic competitiveness and market access, but they have since broadened to encompass worries tied to human rights, economic coercion, strategic dependencies, disinformation, and security. Europe entered a new phase in its relationship with China following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. The No Limits partnership sealed between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin in the weeks before the war began, and China's subsequent refusal uh, to condemn Russia's aggression are cementing the view of China as a competitor and systemic rival in Europe. Importantly, the war has also increased awareness both in European governments and corporate boardrooms about the risks of a conflict over Taiwan. Today, there is an intense debate underway in major European capitals about reducing economic dependencies on China. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen delivered an important speech on March 30th in which she argued for a de-risking of, of Europe's relationship with China. Over the coming months, Europe will begin the process of defining what de-risking means in practice. The hardening of Europe's line can obscure differences that exist between 27 EU member states and in some cases within individual European governments. On the hawkish end of the spectrum are a group of Eastern European countries led by Lithuania, which promote a values-based foreign policy, 
at the dovish extreme is a country like Hungary. The largest EU states, including Germany and France, fall somewhere in between. As we saw on President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to China, France stands out for its support for European strategic autonomy, which is code for an independent Europe that is not overly reliant on China or the United States. Germany stands out for having what is by far the closest economic relationship with China uh, of any European country. According to new figures from Rhodium Group, German firms accounted for 84% of total EU FDI into China last year. Germany is also the country in Europe where the debate over relations with China is the most intense. Chancellor Olaf Scholz's coalition is divided over how far and fast to go in recalibrating ties with China. Still, it is fair to say that the win-win economic narrative that has fueled close ties between Berlin and Beijing in recent decades is increasingly being eroded by conditions on the ground in China and competition from Chinese firms in core German industries like uh, autos. I'd like to conclude with a few observations about transatlantic cooperation on China. First, I believe we have seen a great deal of convergence between the US and Europe over the past two years on the language that is being used to define the challenges posed by China. In recent months, we've seen senior officials on both sides of the Atlantic embrace the term de-risking, and we've seen officials distance themselves from the idea of a full-blown economic decoupling from China. Second, this alignment is more than just rhetorical. There is a growing transatlantic consensus on the need to reduce dependencies on China, diversify to other markets, and improve the resilience of supply chains. Third, the US and EU have created a series of structured dialogues on China. Uh, In recent years, the US-EU Trade and Technology Council held its fourth ministerial meeting in Sweden last week. China also features in discussions at NATO and the G7. Fourth, the war in Ukraine has pushed the US and Europe closer together and focused minds in Europe on the risks of a conflict in Taiwan. That said, it is wrong to expect perfect alignment between the US and Europe on China. The US is an incumbent superpower. It plays a vital security role in the Indo-Pacific, and it is not a collection of countries with different interests like the EU is. Uh, As a result, it sees China through a different prism than Europe does, and its response reflects this. Uh, There is no appetite in European capitals for containing or isolating China, and there are concerns in some capitals about what is perceived as an overly confrontational approach from some corners of Washington, particularly on the issue of Taiwan. There is a consensus in Europe that despite the growing strains, but also because of these strains, one must continue to engage robustly with Beijing. As a result, we've seen a flurry of visits by European leaders. I am convinced that building transatlantic convergence on China and limiting the risk of divergence depends on robust engagement between the US and EU on trade, technology, and security policies that are at the heart of the challenges presented by Beijing's policies. This will include building a positive transatlantic narrative, including on trade and investment, that is not only about China. It will require that the U.S. look beyond the daily noise on China policy that is coming from 27 uh, EU member states and remembering Europe is not a monolith. And it will require that the administration members of Congress are active, persistent, patient, and when necessary, forceful in making their policy arguments to European counterparts behind closed doors. 
I believe we are on a similar trajectory on China between Europe and the US uh, that has been driven by the policy choices in Beijing. Uh, if Europe has a strong partner in Washington, I'm convinced that Washington will have a strong partner in Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Barkin. Dr. Ertl. Thank you, Chair Shaheen, Ranking Member Ricketts. Thank you for the opportunity to be appear here before you today. It's an honor and a privilege. I would like to make four brief points. First, Europeans do not speak with one voice when it comes to China, but that does not necessarily translate into disunity in action. The overall level of attention regarding China as a challenge to European interests has grown remarkably over the last five years. China policy matters more. Therefore, it makes sense that it is more fiercely debated. Discussions seem to be all over the place when looking at the day-to-day -day reporting, but stepping back from that kind of daily madness, it's actually not true when looking at what is happening at the policy level. Among EU policymakers, positions on key matters are broadly united and on a linear trajectory of significant hardening and growing skepticism about the future relationship with Beijing. The recent visit by French President Macron to China has not changed this overall trend. The packages and policies agreed upon at the EU level with a clear eye towards China are real, impactful, and they're here to stay. And they have enhanced the EU's ability to respond to the changing geopolitical environment. From investment screening to the 5G toolbox or the carbon border adjustment mechanism, they're all rooted in hard changes in the economic reality. Trade relations between Europe and China are changing in China's favor. Particularly for small and medium-sized European enterprises, the Chinese market is thus moving from being the place to be to being ris risky business. Second point would be China's support for the Russian invasion in Ukraine constitutes an absolute turning point in Europe-China relations. The war in Ukraine has not put the question of how to relate to China on the diplomatic and strategic back burner, which one could have expected. On the contrary, because of Beijing's support for Moscow, it has brought the idea of China as a challenge to European strategic interests closer to home. Particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, the observable shift among many leaders is significant and will be lasting. The war has underscored the problem of overdependence on China, as well as overall supply chain risks. But this does not translate into a desire for full-scale decoupling in Europe. The costs that the heartbreak in the relations with Russia has incurred on European economies are a huge warning sign to many policymakers. At the same time, the war has highlighted the potential implications of other global security risks and has ignited a discussion about the security situation in Taiwan. Possible scenarios and assessment of the potential fallout are now hotly debated in Europe's strategic community. And if I may add, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've never seen these debates before. Thirdly, the Chinese leadership sees Europe as a battleground for competition with the United States, but the European public does not quite perceive it that way yet. The Chinese leadership continues to see an advantage in trying to undercut alignment, distract EU countries from China's engagement with Moscow, and obstruct transatlantic unity. Therefore, China currently appears to be on a repair mission in the relations with Europe. Special Envoy Li Hui's visit and a flurry of additional diplomatic activity, including government consultations with the German cabinet this June or Chinese Premier Li Tiang's presence at Macron's new global financial pact summit in Paris two days later, are signs of that. Among European leaders, this has not fundamentally swayed positions, but it seems that they have so far failed to convey the urgency of their changing approach to China to the direct and the direct implications for European security and prosperity convincingly at home. Today, my colleagues at the European Council on Foreign Relations have published polling data from 11 EU member states. 
With regard to a Taiwan contingency, the majority of respondents, 62 on average, 62%, would be in favor of a neutral stance. European policymakers know that this is not an option and need to communicate this much clearer to their domestic audiences. Because once a direct connection to Europe's own security is more palpable, numbers do change. A staggering 41% of respondents on average across member states would thus be in favor of sanctions against China if it were to deliver ammunition or weapons to Russia, even if this meant, and I quote, serious economic harm to Western economies. This brings me to my fourth and final point. Among policymakers, transatlantic convergence on the analysis of the challenges posed by China is real, but de-risk and diversify needs to move beyond the slogan. The discussions at the G7 level have reached a new consensus since the Hiroshima summit with a joint commitment to economic resilience and economic security. The negotiations in the framework of the TTC are enhancing trust and making real progress possible from green technologies, particularly also to standard setting. And the various bilateral exchanges on the issue, including ahead of meetings with Chinese counterparts, have generated a much higher degree of coordination. To guarantee that this trend is sustainable beyond this U.S. administration and to bring the European and American public along, what is needed is concrete, joint, or parallel action that benefits both sides of the Atlantic and shares risks and costs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Ertl. Mr. Small. Chair Shaheen, Ranking Member Ricketts, it's an honor to have the opportunity to speak before you today on this important topic. As both of you and as my fellow witnesses have laid out, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been a watershed moment for European China policy and for the transatlantic agenda on China. The United States and Europe already agreed on the challenges that the PRC posed. We agreed also that they were systemic, that security, human rights, economic factors, technology couldn't exist in separate lanes anymore, that they were intertwined. And we agreed on many of the measures that we needed to take in response. But there was... Um, as Ranking Member Ricketts noted, an urgency gap between the two sides. There's no question that we've gone through a transformation in how China is being dealt with in the transatlantic relationship, from a time when Europe was still apprehensive about open cooperation with the US on China to a situation where that coordination is now embedded at every level of the relationship, from NATO to the TTC. But it's been clear at the same time that the US was moving further and faster in overhauling its China policies, and that the European side was often in reactive and sometimes slightly reluctant mode, recognizing the issues at stake, heading in the right direction, but often lacking the momentum to make some of the more difficult choices required. Following the Russian invasion, that urgency gap has been closing. First, the political common sense in Europe when it comes to economic risk with China has now changed. The combined shock of the pandemic and the invasion, on top of all the existing concerns about the PRC's trajectory under Xi Jinping, have made it much harder to argue that the status quo is the low-risk, cost-free option. There is certainly a spectrum of views in Europe on how to define economic security and de-risking, as the business delegations that you noted show. But this is a mindset shift in Europe. And in each practical area, from export controls to outbound investment screening, it's making coordination across the Atlantic easier. Second, broader perceptions of China have shifted as a result of the support that Beijing has extended to Moscow. The PRC is now seen by many Europeans as an enabler of Russia's war, a direct contributor to security threats in Europe in a way that's far more tangible than cyber intrusions or influence operations ever were. European policymakers certainly still want to keep areas of cooperation alive, but there's a consensus that rivalry and competition now define the relationship. 
And European leaders have delivered a consistent message to Beijing in recent months that the provision of military support to Russia would amount to an even graver rupture in the Sino-European relationship. Third has been to make more tangible the possibility of a major security crisis in East Asia, particularly over Taiwan, and the risks of complacency about the intentions of revisionist authoritarian powers. There is deeper understanding now among European policymakers of how interconnected security issues in the Atlantic and Indo-Pacific theaters are, of the seismic shock that a cross-strait crisis would have for Europe, and that Europe is a player when it comes to deterring China. 18 months ago, when China looked at Europe as a sanctions actor, they thought Crimea. In other words, modest measures that they could live with, that they could swallow. Now when they look at Europe, they see swift cutoffs, central bank asset freezes, and sweeping export controls. Even if Europe and the US can't agree on preemptive signaling to China, the PRC now still has to take the possibility of a European economic squeeze into account before taking any fateful decisions. Beijing sees all of these developments with concern and is trying to undercut or at least slow them down. The PRC wants to make cooperation with the US for Europe as costly as possible and incentivize European acts of distancing. It wants to ensure that there's no red lines crossed when it comes to European cooperation with Taiwan. And right now, China is exceptionally focused on trying to maintain European openness for Chinese access to advanced technologies, where Europe has become even more important to the PRC since the US semiconductor export controls from last October. And, of course, what Beijing thinks is coming next. Ultimately, though, the PRC has decided to accept some level of collateral damage to its relationships in Europe as the price for deepening ties with Moscow. In the wider struggle that the PRC understands itself to be engaged in with the United States, she sees the partnership with Russia, even a weakened Russia, offering greater strategic benefits than any other relationship. And China is realistic about where it sees the Europeans landing in this geopolitical landscape. Chinese Communist Party's internal documents have long referenced Western hegemony, Western values, and Western hostile forces as the focus of its animosity. But Xi spoke openly in March about Western countries that have implemented all-round containment, encirclement, and suppression. The PRC will do what it can to limit the damage to its position in Europe, as Beijing's caution about the Russian request for lethal aid indicate. But it is simultaneously stealing itself for a contest with the West, not the United States alone. The coalition that the United States needs to build to address the shared challenges posed by China span multiple domains and geographies. We still have a long way to go on the transatlantic agenda, but we've reached a far deeper level of coordination on China than looked plausible a few years ago, and I think that will continue to be the trajectory in the years ahead. Thank you for your time. Thank you all very much. Um, we will begin a round of questions, um, five minutes for each of us, and we will go in order of um, anyone else who comes in after Senator Ricketson. I begin. Um, I want to start with this map of Montenegro because um, all of your testimony spoke to movement in Europe, and I think one of one of the reasons for some of that movement is not just the war in Ukraine and. Um, a recognition of what's going on in China, but it's also a reflection of China's behavior in some of our European um, allies. And this map shows one of those examples that I talked about in my opening statement. It's a road in Montenegro that um, was supported through China's Belt and Road Initiative with funding from the Export-Import Bank of China. It was supposed to connect the north and south of the country, 
begun back in 2014, and Montenegro signed a nearly $1 billion um, deal to do that. Now, in red, you can see where the project is completed. Um, but the blue parts show the still incomplete sections of the project. And it not only highlights the challenges that Montenegro has had um, because of their um, need for capital and infrastructure investment, but it also shows the challenges that China has had in trying to do what it promises to countries like Montenegro um, who have signed up for the Belt and Road Initiative. I have to say it's a little baffling to me that um, in March, Montenegro signed up for yet another infrastructure project um, deal with China for a road. But again, I, I think it reveals some of the vulnerabilities that China has. We also have a map on the other side that shows um, the European countries that have signed on to China's Belt and Road Initiative. And again, um, the darkest ones signed up earliest, and we're still seeing the gray sections um, where we are not sure where they are at this point. But certainly the, the movement that we're seeing in Europe is going to affect those countries as they think about their futures. So I would ask you all, within Montenegro and the EU, what are some of the lessons that have been learned by the EU from this kind of a project so that they avoid becoming targets of Chinese dis disinformation of debt trap diplomacy? I don't know who would like to begin. Maybe let me, let me start a little bit broader because you want to talk about the lessons of this. And I think the Western Balkans is, is one of the reasons right. why we have, a, you know, we have a sincere discussion about China's role also with regard to the future rebuilding of Ukraine, for example, which I think is closely connected to that and where a conversation should start transatlantically immediately um, and how to set kind of guardrails for that in the future, just as a, as a footnote, because I think it's really important. I do think that a lot of the lessons um, have been learned at the EU level, but... Um, this, these are member state decisions, member state decisions that are often very much driven by national domestic interest, um, where there's always changes in government, where new decisions can be taken and where a kind of linear um, linearity of or the lessons learned will not necessarily be taken forward, but because these are based on domestic political appeal. Um, so for the kind of the future, it is more important that within the EU, there are decisions on critical infrastructure taken as you have laid out initially, because I think honestly, it is more surprising to me that in 2023, a decision can be taken by the German train, Deutsche Bahn, to have their entire IT infrastructure built by Huawei. Um, then it is surprising to me that a debt-ridden country is willing to take on a loan from China to build an important infrastructure project. So this is where I would like to kind of put the emphasis on in the conversation, because I think if we focus too much on projects in the Western Balkans or in other regions where um, they're kind of um, of limited financial scope um, that need to be dealt with and that can be dealt with at the EU level, we actually need to look closer into the heart of the EU. Well, so before we go on to address that, so answer that question about Germany and why, why Germany is willing to make that kind of 
um, because there's still no understanding of the fact that there is a real risk attached. Um, and moving the, the heads of people into the zone, that there are real strategic concerns. You know, this deal did not have to even be flagged to any authorities because it wasn't considered critical infrastructure. So I think there is a mindset shift at a top level that have, we have seen, but it hasn't trickled down across the entirety of the system. And we still are in a situation where there's a lot of worry, particularly in Germany, about you know, making China mad, making them uncomfortable. Um, there is a lot of interest in just connecting and having good business relations going. Um, so I think there is a bigger problem there sometimes than we see. And it's easy to you know, finger point at the 16 plus 1, 14 plus 1 that they're now. Um, we like to do that in Berlin as well. But actually, it needs to start closer to home. Thank you, Mr. Small. You were going to add to that. Yes, thank you. Um, just to add a couple of points to this. Um, so when one looks at that map that you laid out of the Belt and Road countries. Um, one also thinks back to an era of the Eurozone crisis um, and the biggest phase of Chinese investment in European infrastructure. Um, and I think that has been a lesson that has been taken on board very seriously, particularly through the pandemic. The number of policymakers who said we must not repeat the mistakes of Piraeus, we must not repeat the mistakes that we made of squeezing a number of these countries in terms of their fiscal space and putting them in a position where they either feel they have to take Chinese investment or they feel they want to play the China card with Brussels, with Berlin, with whoever else. Um, I think that's something something that we have seen much less of um, in the last period of time. One of those countries, of course, Italy, um, is currently considering withdrawing um, from its um, uh, Belt and Road uh, MOU, um, which, which I think is reflective as well of how the tide has turned for much of Europe. I think there's, of course, a very different question when we're talking about the Western Balkans, when we're talking about countries on Europe's periphery, um, where I think some of these issues have not yet been successfully resolved. Of course, there's all the funds on the EU side, which still dwarf any of the money that comes in um, from, from China. This isn't a kind of competitiveness space in terms of the, the resources that, that are put on offer. Um, it's just, and this is going to be an endemic problem, um, that there are going to be countries that want to do some of the problematic political deals that are involved. Um, I think some of this, when it comes to EU accession negotiations, for instance, means putting these issues up front. This is um, as, as Janka mentioned, something that when it comes to Ukraine is going to be important um, potentially in future. Um, but I think there's also an understanding, particularly now, which I think is the hardest moment that the Belt and Road has faced um, in it, since it started. I think there is an understanding of the level of crisis that it can put countries in, the toxicity of the debt that makes it harder to negotiate with other creditors. Um, and, and the Montenegro case, of course, has all of the secrecy clauses. We still don't even know all of the, the, the details yet of of, of some of the, the contracts. So I think there's been a big shift um, in understanding, particularly since going back to the, the, the point at which um, some of these early contracts were, were agreed, but we still have a lot further to go, even in some of the core spaces in Europe and on digital infrastructure and on many of these other areas. Well, thank you. I would like to explore that some of those points some more, but I will turn it over to Senator Ricketts next. Thank you, Madam Chairman. One of the things that we saw that I touched upon in my opening remarks was how Europe has had to react to the Russian invasion of Ukraine with regard to their energy. My understanding is in the years prior to this invasion that U.S. officials have been warning Europe about their over-reliance on Russian energy and what that could mean if there was a crisis, and by and large were dismissed as almost being laughed out of the room, but just saying that, that's not going to be a problem, it's never going to happen. 
But then, of course, we have seen that it has happened, and it has, as I mentioned earlier, caught them off guard, and they've had to scramble to be able to be able to realign their energy mix of where it's coming from. And this just kind of demonstrates kind of the foot dragging that has been gone in Europe, also with regards to the People's Republic of China. Obviously, uh, Ursula von der Leyen's speech was very good. It looked to start getting away from this methodology of calling them uh, the PRC partner, competitor, rival, and talked about de-risking. And at the TTC summit, uh, Swedish Prime Minister Christensen said, I think the U.S. has been a few years ahead of Europe, but I think very many countries now realize this is not the time for naivety. So I think that there's movement there, but the question gets back to the matter of timing. The PRC has been increasingly hostile and aggressive in its rhetoric toward Taiwan. We just saw this past week where a uh, PRC destroyer had a very close call with an American ship, um, you know, obviously on purpose, being very aggressive in its maneuvers. And so my question is, how fast is this moving? If this is a 5, 10, 15-year thing with regard to the European Union and how we deter the PRC, my fear is that will be too late, that the PRC will move faster than that to get to Taiwan. So, uh, Dr. Ertl, maybe I'll start with you. How do European leaders see this? I mean, do you think this is something with regards specifically about deterring the PRC in Taiwan? Is this something that they are talking about? And actually, maybe I'll ask you to comment a little bit because you said you hadn't seen this, these types of debates before. Was that specifically with regard to the PRC or just broadly you hadn't seen this kind of debate before? But how do European leaders see that? Is this something where they think, yeah, we've got to take steps right now? Or are they still thinking this is a years down the road problem? So Taiwan has become an issue that has moved on the agenda, and I was referring specifically to Taiwan as a topic, um, as, that, as a discussion that I haven't seen in that, like, in that way before um, in the last 15 years, because it has moved so fast. Um, the, the, the problem was so far away for European leaders for such a long time, but particularly the reliance on semiconductors, particularly the reliance on trade routes, particularly the integration of supply chains has led European leaders to understand, and I think um, Noah's colleagues at Rhodium Group have um, added to that with a fantastic report that has put some numbers to this. Um, and you know, uh, when, when you give European politicians the cost, the actual cost of, an, of a crisis, that does change um, the logic a little bit. Um, so we are having now very substantive conversations at all levels in the member states, but there is a capacity gap in some member states because it's just really difficult to be on top of all of these different matters. There is, a, um, there is an urgency gap in some member states, but there is certainly a conversation at the EU level that is very interesting at the moment, and I think where a lot of the action will be happening in the future. But real action, um, it is very unlikely to see um, some, like, something, in, some, something committed um, to see before something really happens. So I think it is more interesting now to sound out the gray lines, the gray zones, to sound out policy responses to um, kind of more limited incursions, questions of um, more, what would certain scenarios mean in terms of cost to the European economy, and then to drive this message home at home, because I think the data that I've presented in terms of our public opinion reviews, um, I would say, you know, if you have 62% that want to stay neutral in a scenario where neutrality is not an option, as a politician you have a job to do um, of explaining why neutrality is not an option, and then explaining how you will manage the issue and what the expectation level of the regional countries will be. But Dr. Earl, sounds like what you're telling me about European leaders, generally speaking, is they're starting to move, but they're not to the point where they can even make the case then to their respective populations. 
about trying to deter the PRC in Taiwan right now because they're still not quite there themselves. Is that fair? I think they have started to make that case, um, but I think this is a long process because this is really not an immediate security threat that has been on the agenda of policymakers for a long time. So I would say it's moving pretty fast for EU speed, um, which is um, not always the fastest, um, but I don't think it's a five or ten year framework that we're looking at, but more like the next year is going to be a year of intense discussions around this issue. Okay, then great. So let me uh, just follow up with regard to the respective public opinion on this because you gave some stats on that. Mm -hmm. And how quickly did that move after the invasion of Ukraine? And what, is it, what role can the United States play in helping bring those populations along to be able to understand the threat? You know, for example, if there was a conflict uh, in the Taiwan Straits, that's 30% of the world's trade. That's going to impact Europe. I'm guessing a lot of Europeans don't necessarily know that. I'm sure a lot of Americans don't know it. So what... Uh, how fast did it move in Ukraine, and what can we as the United States do to, to help with that? It moved immediately after Ukraine, um, and I think what we have also seen is that some things that take forever normally don't take very long then under um, circumstances like that. If I remind you of the LNG terminals in Germany, which everyone told us was going to take eight years and it took eight months to build them, things can move very quickly in a situation of crisis. And I think this is what the EU has demonstrated and European countries have demonstrated, that they are, w that they are able to swing around when the crisis is real. Now, I think what a lot of people in the expert circles are advocating for is that the cost of this swing is a lot lower when you start a little bit earlier. Um, so I think this is the zone that we're in right now to ask the question between you know, how imminent is the problem and how likely is it to, to come. And I think this is where the debates are heading at the moment because, of course, if you regard a problem as very imminent, then you will take different policy options as if you think it will not happen in the next five years, so we will do certain other things first. If you are in a situation of crisis, which you always have to remind I mean, everyone of Europe is in a crisis situation at the moment, like it hasn't been, as you said, um, basically since World War II. So there are priority questions right now, prioritization questions at the moment going on, and this is one of them. Um, and I think, so I think movement is possible pretty fast, um, and I think the United States can help by making the case and providing data on what the cost, for example, would be. I think this is really important to underscore and underline um, how important, um, how, how kind of we can come to good, um, yeah, to good trade data, to good figures on what this would mean. Yeah, and I think one of the things that European leaders would be wise to do is read what Xi Jinping is saying because they've made very clear that bringing Taiwan back into the PRC's fold is an existential threat to the Chinese Communist Party, which means they have said there is no room for compromise on this. So the timing obviously is still up in the air, but the imminency of it, the fact, or the, rather the certainty of it, is something that the PRC has no doubt about, that they are, they are going to do this at some point, whether it's peaceful or through our means, they believe they will do this. Let's say there's a real reckoning going on um, about what authoritarian leaders say and what they actually mean, and that we should take that very seriously, which I think is a lesson that was learned the hard way over the last 18 months in Europe. Yep. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Ricketts. Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair, and thank you for holding a hearing on this topic. Thank all of you for being here today, and let me just pick up uh, where Senator Ricketts left off. And in your answer, you indicated there's a major debate and dialogue going on uh, within Europe uh, as to the direction we need to take. And I think here in the United States, um, we see it sort of set forth um, in the dichotomy distinction between the remarks uh, President von der Leyen made before she went 
uh, to China uh, and the remarks of President Macron. And uh, as we look at this, I think there's broad agreement between the Biden administration and our, our European partners uh, that we, uh, we, we don't want to decouple, but we do want to de-risk. I think we've kind of settled on that formulation. Of course, uh, the devil is always in the details. And really, that's what I want to dig into a little more uh, because um, people can perceive what de-risking means, obviously, in very different ways. So uh, if I could start with um, uh, the issue of critical minerals. Um, and, and Dr. Earle, uh, I think you mentioned in your testimony the EU Critical uh, Raw Minerals Act. Of course, we passed here uh, the Inflation Reduction Act with all the uh, incentives for clean energy. And obviously, we've got a big back and forth going on between the United States and Europe to try to get to a place where um, we can coordinate so that we are not reliant on, on the PRC for critical minerals in a growing EV industry. Where do those talks stand in your view? And how important is it to our collective success that we reach agreement? Let me start with the last question first. It is essential for our success to work together on this issue. I think this is fairly widely understood um, among all European leaders, um, but it's also clear that this is not even the transatlantic alliance that is enough for this. We will need to partner very closely with Indo-Pacific partners and allies because otherwise we will not stem this massive um, problem that we are facing in this regard and the massive reliance over a short time. Um, the this is one of the issue areas in which I would say the movement is already the fastest. This is a pretty tangible policy issue. It's a pretty tangible policy problem. And again, the figures matter. When you can start saying things like reliance to 98%, reliance to 85%, reliance to 99%, and then you can also address that to you know, domestic industries and say your cars will not be produced anymore because this will be missing, this is a choke point. Well, that actually generates action relatively quickly. So the critical raw materials... Act and the, the kind of the policies that we are seeing, particularly also in Berlin, and the discussions that we're seeing happening at the European level are quite substantial and are areas in which it's also kind of possible to move um, because you can then start exploring, you can start working together, you can start looking where are things possible, what, are the, what is the red tape that needs to be cut, what are the deposits that we have in, in Europe from northern Sweden to Serbia, um, what are the deposits that um, can, be, can be exploited quicker, um, what are the more difficult areas. I think this is one of the areas in which I think um, we see the collaboration between the US and Europe working, but also we see the Europeans actually kind of grasping the problem and actually moving and starting to put this into practice. This will not be easy, but I think this is one of the few areas in which also the discussion has been going on for a long time now. Got it. No, I, I, I appreciate that. And as, as you indicated, um, we obviously have to have coordination between the United States um, and our EU partners, but also critical partners around the world, both um, Japan, South Korea, where we've already got agreement, but also much of the ASEAN countries where um, we have the JetP proposal. We've really got, and we have to work collectively uh, to make this work. Um, let me just ask a follow-on uh, question uh, regarding advanced semiconductors, really, for all of you. It's, a, it's another sort of aspect of this whole discussion, uh, of course. And as you know, we had cooperation between the United States, Japan, and the Netherlands when it came to uh, restricting uh, the export of advanced manufacturing equipment for the highest end uh, chips, um, which is a good model. It only works, though, if we can ultimately expand that cooperation to all the other countries that uh, can supply this kind of advanced material. So when it comes to export controls 
on advanced semiconductors. Uh, where do you think we are in terms of our ability to coordinate uh, with our European partners and others around the world who could also supply uh, that very advanced technology? I'll just take each of you again. I, this is, this is uh, Senator Van Hollen, uh, a very uh, important question. I think uh, when I look at the issue of de-risking, I think you can break it down into several parts. There's supply chain resilience, there's protecting critical infrastructure, and then there's technology transfer uh, to uh, China. And I think uh, on the issue of export controls, uh, it's, it's going to be uh, difficult with Europe because Europe is not uh, a single entity. Export controls uh, policy is in the hand, uh, hands of the member states, the 27 member states. Uh, so it was the Dutch that decided to go along with Japan and the United States uh, in, in uh, preventing one of its biggest companies from sending uh, semiconductor manufacturing equipment to China. Now every country in Europe, and I know that uh, officials in Berlin uh, are thinking about this right now, uh, but what Europe really needs is, a, is more coordination between its member states, developing uh, a common policy, uh, being able to sit down with uh, Washington and discuss these issues. Uh, something that uh, Yanka mentioned earlier, uh, I think which is a real issue, is a lack of investment in uh, uh, sort of the, the, the people who are doing the research to find out uh, 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 the details of the, uh, of the technologies, et cetera. So I think we have here in Washington a whole-of-government approach, everyone uh, pulling behind this. I think the October 7th uh, uh, export controls that were announced, I, I don't think anyone in Europe, uh, in a, whether it's a European member state or the European Commission, could have come up with a, a document like that. So they need to invest in the resources. They need to coordinate better so they can sit down and talk at eye level uh, with the United States on these issues. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Senator Duckworth. I guess the time's up. I'll follow <laughs> up with you. I'll follow up with you. Uh, thank you, Madam Chair. I'd like to thank all the witnesses for appearing here today. You know, it's not long ago that many European countries viewed their engagement with Russia in primarily economic terms, and it took this largest conflict in Europe since World War II to convince them that security matters had to be given equal or greater weight in their policy deliberations. And similarly, there is, as you've all described um, today, continued division within Europe on how much to emphasize cooperation, particularly economic cooperation, um, vice strategic competition in European relations with the PRC. Um, at last week's US-EU Trade and Technology Council ministerial, EU officials described the pending draft of an economic security strategy that includes an anti-coercion instrument as well as language on export controls um, and outbound investment screening, suggesting that the EU is starting to move in the right direction. Uh, Dr. Ertel, this question is initially for you, although, um, uh, gentlemen, you, you, I welcome uh, your, your input as well. What do you think is if the most effective way to push Europe to reckon with the security challenges posed by the PRC? Um, for example, is it continued pressure from the United States? Is it internal reckoning driven by a collective within Europe? Or is it going to be more models like the AUKUS uh, agreement, the Australia-UK-US agreement, um, that will draw individual European allies further into the Pacific? And, and what more should we be doing to find the right balance here um, and let our weight in the right direction between those different ways that we could get Europe to get more involved? 
Yeah, so what we've seen, and maybe I, I take a historical example here, which is already historical, is the 5G debate, um, where we've seen a lot of influence from the, Euro from the American side, from the US side, a lot of push from the European side, uh, from, the, from the American side. And then um, there was a real reaction in some parts. Oh, that's <laughs> not just, you. Okay. Not, not you, you, it's the buzzer system in the capital. Um, so, uh, so there was a real uh, reaction in some parts of Europe, particularly in Eastern Europe, immediately to take on the security challenge and to immediately think about it. And in other parts, there was greater reluctance. Um, and there was a big discussion about does U US pressure help more or hurt more uh, in this regard? I would say at this stage, we are in a, at the moment, um, it would be good if it would be a continued upkeep of pressure in terms of securing critical infrastructure. Because I do think once the eyes are off the ball, things do not necessarily move in the direction any further. They sometimes just stall. Um, because the political tension is moving away. So I would say, A, that is, a, that is really worthwhile to continue to do that and to continue to move in that direction. And the second thing that I would say is invest in capacity building. Um, I think there is still an overestimation in other parts of the world of what most European member states are capable of providing in terms of analysis um, of, of the problems that they're facing. Um, so I do think that providing data, providing information, working together um, on providing kind of um, good um, substantive examples of what the actual challenges are is really important. Um, I think I see that um, a, a huge role for collaboration also between parliaments, um, because I do think that parliamentarians across Europe have woken up to the challenge but are not necessarily sure how to respond. And I do think that there is a lot of capacity building that can be done, um, and that can actually help that internal process that you were talking about, because in the end, that is what it takes. Um, this will not be you know, inflicted upon Europeans. It, they will need to come to their own conclusions on this. Um, but I do see the process moving, and a little nudge from the US side, at least on 5G, has certainly not hurt. Is, is, there, is there a utility in bringing in individual European nations in sort of a partnership, uh, um, regional partnerships, uh, like AUKUS did with Australia, UK, and United States? And I'm sort of thinking, you know, we've already had a discussion on, on critical minerals, um, and, and reports of a pending EU bill on critical minerals suggest that they share a concern about the need to diversify supplies away from the PRC. And among other potential partners, uh, Indonesia, I was in Indonesia earlier this year, they stand out as a country with both significant deposits of key minerals, um, as well as a strong investment interest from the PRC. And the launch of the Just Energy Transition Partnership at the Bali G20 Summit in 2022 suggests that there is room for US-EU uh, collaboration in this in this space. And so um, perhaps this is more Mr. Small, your, your area here. I know you touch on the critical minerals issue already. Do you support opportunities for the U.S. and Europe or U.S. individual European nations in a, in a partnership um, set up to collaborate more in developing initiatives that strengthen Western engagement, especially in a place like Indonesia? Thank you. I mean, I, I think Indonesia is supposed to be one of the early forerunner examples of what we should be able to do collectively in terms of the offer that we can put out, um, uh, the just energy um, transition, and, and to a certain extent with the Partnership for Global Infrastructure uh, in general on this. I think it is the area where we've lagged um, in, in general. I know there's a considerable level of focus on this, and again, particularly when it comes to critical raw materials, um, but I think when you look at a number of the developing countries right now who are assessing the 
the landscape? What's going on on, on the US and, and, and EU at the moment in all of these areas? Are we now going through a deglobalization phase? Is there a pulling up of the ladder, pulling up of the drawbridge? Or is this going to mean new opportunities for us? Um, and as we discussed earlier, at a moment where the Belt and Road is at a very, very difficult point, it's actually a juncture in which the opportunity to step out with improved packages for countries, where I think Indonesia is an excellent example, South Africa is, of course, the other um, uh, matching example, um, Chile. We're looking at a number of um, kind of priority early cases that tie into the other elements of our um, agenda on critical raw materials and, and, and supply chains. Um, but I think the battle on opinion in the developing world on this is still very much to be won. I think we've lagged behind still somewhat when it comes to really mobilizing the resources for infrastructure finance, rethinking development aid, all of these efforts that we have kept talking about. But if I talk to the developing world policymakers who are trying to look at, okay, where is the alternative coming from? I think there's still the jury is still out there as to whether we've got there yet. I think we've made a lot of progress on the defensive agenda, on the kind of um, restrictions on export controls and all of these things. I think that's heading in the right direction. I think the, the big question mark is whether we have our collective packages together between the US, EU, Japan, um, and some of the other big partners to be able to really offer a, um, a, a full package alternative to some of these countries. Thank you. Thank you, Senator Duckworth. I think there's an interest in a second round of questions from some of us. Um, so I will begin with that. China in recent weeks has tried to position itself as um, a potential mediator in the war in Ukraine. So can you speak to how that um, positioning is being viewed in Europe and whether there's any, I mean, and how Ukraine sees it and also whether there's any real belief that this is a possibility? I don't know, maybe you'd like to begin, Mr. Barkin. Sure. Um, very good question. Uh, I think we have had a number of senior European officials, uh, including French President Emmanuel Macron and uh, the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Borrell, uh, uh, talking about the fact that, or, or, or advocating for the fact that China play uh, a mediating role. I think the way I understand uh, these comments uh, is that there's a realization that China uh, if any country has influence over Russia, it's China. So I think in Europe, uh, leaders uh, uh, are going out of their way to go to Beijing, sit down with Xi Jinping, uh, and uh, encourage him uh, to uh, put pressure on Putin. Um, uh, I think there are, uh, the jury is still out on whether this uh, will happen. I think there is a healthy dose of skepticism about whether it will. We just had a Chinese envoy coming through uh, Europe. Uh, he passed through Kiev, passed through a number of other European capitals. Uh, and uh, my understanding is he, he was just reading out uh, talking points. Uh, there was no real substantive discussion or, or effort to, uh, uh, to uh, bring about, uh, come up with new solutions for, 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 for a peace deal. Um, so I, I, I think we will continue to see the Europeans... Uh, go out of their way to pressure China, to encourage China to play a role, um, because they, they realize that China is the only country that really may have any influence over, over Russia. But I don't think that expectations are very high that, it, that it's going to happen. Mr. Small. 
I'd just add to, to this. Um, I think we went through a slight, almost like a delusion and desperation phase on this. People looking for any avenue possible, and China is an avenue, and maybe they can use their influence. Um, I think we've had a dose of realism, particularly after Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow. Chinese diplomats were briefing that this was going to be a peace mission and things like that. And Xi Jinping did not even want to pretend that it was a peace mission. It was just a deepening of relationships trip again. Um, I think we're rather moving into a slight, almost a call China's bluff exercise as well. Um, with this, they've laid out a peace plan. Do we reject it out of hand? Uh, not a peace plan, a 12-point proposal that's not really a peace plan. Um, but do we pick and mix a few of these, prod China harder? Um, that was what we saw in the document the joint document during the Macron visit. Um, and I think also a concern, as the other element of your question hinted at, not to be out of line with where Zelensky is on this, um, uh, where I think he at least wanted to play along with this um, exercise on, on China's part. I don't think anyone thinks it's going to lead anywhere, but I think also no one wants to, at the moment, give China the out of saying, we came up with proposals and they were all rejected. Um, so I, I think there's very little faith in this amounting to anything. There is a question of China being brought in at the later stage of the process, perhaps in the summer, whether the Russians may want to pull the, the Chinese in at this stage, that means that there is still some value in exchanges and talking to the mm -hmm. Chinese about that. The French are doing that in particular at the moment. But I, I do think most of the illusions about the role that China might play on this, we saw a little bit of distancing um, when Xi Jinping met Putin at the Samarkand summit, I think, and the statements on nuclear weapons use. Every time China makes a statement on uh, nuclear weapons being stationed abroad, you then see what happens the next day in, in, with Belarus. I think people understand understand what this amounts to uh, now, but I, I think they still think it's worth going through the process. And do you agree with that, Dr. Erdl? I think it's, it's really important to understand that this is the one issue where the Europeans are also really concerned that China will go a step further, and where the message consistency of the visit of Sanchez, Macron, um, Olaf Scholz, um, Annalena Baerbock and von der Leyen, it was all the same message of saying it is a red line for Europeans if China were to deliver ammunition or arms to Russia. And I think this is really important because I think that shows also in the polling data that we've seen, once European leaders are consistent in their message, are clear in what they want from China, there's also public support for these positions among the European public. And I think this is something where um, you know, we, can, we can define that pretty clearly and that's the key point on Ukraine at the moment avoid that from happening and signaling that very clearly that Europeans are willing to bear cost for that to, to, for, de for deterring that to hap from, from happening. Um, all of, I think all of those points make a lot of sense and they're really important. What do you think the view is of China's engagement in a post-war Ukraine? Because obviously there are going to be significant costs to rebuilding Ukraine um, and how do you think the Europeans view China's role in that, or do they see that China has a role? I think there continues to be a mismatch here as well mm -hmm. than in terms of expectations. Um, I think there is the thought that China will be willing to engage in the reconstruction process, um, and uh, I think China will be willing to engage in a reconstruction process, but on Chinese terms and not necessarily on the terms that the Europeans would like to see. Um, so I do think that this is where it meant we need to be very clear early on, despite the fact that we're actually not talking about rebuilding Ukraine at this moment, because at the moment it is still being sure. destroyed, as we're seeing today. Um, it is still important to talk about what the guardrails would look like and what the Ukrainian positions on this would be, because fundamentally this will also be up to the Ukrainian government to decide. 
Yes, Mr. Small. And I'd just add briefly, I mean, of course, we, we know that China doesn't really do serious development aid. If China was coming to the table with vast sums of money that were grants, I think there would be a different debate on this. We're, we're going to be talking about other forms of, of, of financing on, on the Chinese side. So that's one issue that's there, even in, in, in some of the discussions. We're, we're, we're on, we have to go to all of the debt-related problems that we've already um, uh, talked about on this. Um, the second thing is, I do think there is going to be a question, a sort of clever, clever game that's played of, uh, if China invests, this will prevent Russia from taking future action. We've seen this from certain governments in the past that um, they think there'll be a sort of play. Um, and I think, I, I mean, I think this is a misplaced assessment. Um, I think we've, we've seen what has gone on with Chinese infrastructure and, and, and other investments. It will not be a matter of priority. But I think we're going to go into a debate phase on this. We're already in it. It's quite nascent um, at this point. I think it's going to be very important to shape it. And I think um, the US will have a very important role in, in shaping the understanding of that in Europe because I think it's easy to slide into some quite problematic positions um, on, on that area. While these discussions are taking place, I think, quite intensely about what the future um, shape of um, uh, Ukrainian reconstruction looks like. Thank you. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Madam Chairman. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about the TCC. This was something that was created by the European Commission and the Biden administration in 2021 to create a non-binding forum that would put the European Commission in the driver's seat versus, say, member states or the European Parliament. And obviously, it's just that. So my question, and maybe Mr. Barkin, I'll direct this to you, is, is there... Any meaningful action do you think will come out of the T, uh, TTC? And given the fact that it's a non-binding organization, are there changes to it that we could do something to see non-binding? Or is it just really going to be a place where the U.S. and the EU can get together and have conversations? But that's really going to be the end of it. What's kind of your thought on that? I think the, the TTC is hugely important. I think we need to... Uh, adjust our expectations. There's a ministerial meeting every six months. We can't expect big deliverables uh, at every meeting. I think we need to view this as a process, uh, but we also have to set priorities. I think we have 10 uh, working groups at the moment. Uh, I, I think uh, a lot of resources are being poured into this. Uh, we, need, we need to focus on those areas where we uh, feel we can make real progress. This is green tech, uh, uh, avoiding a subsidy race uh, in, in, in green technologies, thinking ahead to 6G uh, standards, uh, developing common standards. If, if, if the U.S. and Europe are not doing that together and, and then we're broadening that out, working with their other allies, uh, then uh, China is going to uh, uh, impose its own uh, standards across, especially in the global south. So, uh, so I think... Um, uh, the TTC serves uh, a purpose, I think, it, it, for the TTC to survive and, and, and persist in, in future administrations. I think it's, it's very important for Congress to get involved, uh, uh, to support it. Um, uh, and otherwise, I think, you know, we, we, need to, we need to think about other dialogue formats as well. We, ha we, we do have an EU-US dialogue uh, on China. Uh, that is also something which is valuable. Uh, they are talking about Taiwan there, um, but we need to we need to keep these these dialogues uh, uh, going and uh, think about them long term. Not expect uh, deliverables every, every every few months. So, but more around, I, I would say, what you're describing is going to be more kind of the background, maybe foundational stuff 
to be able to prepare to de-risk as far as the PRC, but not something that we're the, the, is going to come out and say, hey, here's the things we're going to do specifically to deter the PRC. Is that fair? Well, I think the TTC, we have a, we have a bit of a, a, a divergence uh, because I, I think the U.S. sees the TTC as mainly a, a discussion about China, and I think Europe would like to keep uh, China out of it for the most part and talk about, um, uh, talk about uh, trade and technology cooperation, uh, positive cooperation without uh, that uh, that focus on China. I, I think in the last TTC uh, ministerial in Sweden, China did come up quite a bit. Uh, there's obviously a pushback against China's non-market uh, non policies. Uh, coercion is also an issue uh, in the TTC. Um, uh, but I, I, I think the two sides need to uh, uh, not litigate past uh, problems. They need to think about the future. What, what, what do we, what are the stand, what do we, what do we want to do with 6G, uh, looking out five to ten years ahead? And I think it is something that uh, uh, the EU and U.S., uh, they need to take a long-term view uh, on this. They, they, they can't be thinking we're, we're going to deliver something every, every, every few months. Right, great, thanks. So, Mr. Small, I'd like to talk a little bit about NATO. In uh, June of 2022, NATO came out with their strategic concept document that uh, listed the PRC as one of the strategic priorities in a systematic challenge to the Euro-Atlantic um, security for the first time. Obviously, the PRC took issue with that and, uh, you know, made threatening statements and so forth. Tell me a little bit about what you see about how that can work out, and especially with regard to um, you know, some of the Asia-Pacific countries like South Korea, Japan, Australia, New Zealand that attended the NATO summit. And how do we, because we've mentioned about bringing in those Indo-Pacific partners in, how can NATO work with that to bring that together? And uh, how do you think that works with the PRC? What kind of response will we see from the PRC? Thanks very much. So, I mean, I think you have got these two almost distinct tracks, the AP4, even though the countries don't like being called the AP4 track, and how we can kind of deepen and integrate um, security between the Indo-Pacific um, and the Atlantic theatres, um, where I think we'll see some more progress at, at the Vilnius summit. I think there's been a lot of prep in, in the last period to try to think through what's the next phase of these partnerships. I mean, some of these were... Uh, initially structured around almost arrangements that have been put in place around Afghanistan uh, further back in time with, with some of these countries. And I think it's only really been in the last couple of years that we've moved into this new phase of, uh, and you know, we may yet see the office in Tokyo. Um, I think there's a few other steps that are being envisaged there on the AP4. But I think actually the more important piece of it has been integrating China thinking into NATO in general. And it's been really lagging behind as an institution until this was um, put by pushed by the, by the US um, a few years back to suggest that the institution needs to take this up more seriously. And a lot of the benefits of doing it are actually um, uh, invisible. Um, I think it's a lot of what is being achieved at the moment um, in terms of being able to have a series of sensitive discussions, sharing information, um, uh, sharing intelligence on some significant strategic developments with China that really a culture, the European defense ministries, defense officials, defense ministers to a different mode of thinking and understanding about the, the nature of the challenge they, they face. We're getting very tentative discussions on Taiwan um, where NATO in the end has not, of course, talked through 
some of what these contingencies would, would mean um, in, in, in these scenarios in, in much more nascent stages um, on, on that. Um, I think there are um, as well, um, you know, for instance, the information sharing on China's overseas military bases. There are a number of these things that are taking place relatively discreetly um, at the moment um, and where a number of NATO members are still nervous. They're still nervous. Your question related to China's reaction to this. Um, we are, of course, at a juncture in which China has spoken much more openly about NATO, much more critically about NATO, um, uh, and, and in the No Limits joint statement with Russia, um, explicitly supported the two Russian treaty proposals that would have called essentially for a rollback to the um, uh, uh, stationing of alliance troops that um, essentially predates the end of the Cold War. So I think there is a nervousness about, from some countries about how visibly NATO is assuming this role. I think it was very impressive that we were able to get this language through. Um, but to get the institution to think seriously as well about the conjoined threat of China and Russia, um, to integrate the thinking across the institution, to think through, um, for instance, on um, uh, infrastructure um, issues, military infrastructure, um, and some of the challenges that we've had on, on the digital side there. Um, I think it's been a really useful exercise, um, but there's a large portion of this agenda that's going to be taking place in a non-NATO context um, as, as well. I think there are still a number, I, I, a number of NATO members that will, will still want to see pieces of the security agenda dealt with seriously vis-a-vis -vis China, dealt with seriously in Asia, um, but not necessarily just through NATO auspices. So I also think we need to kind of draw a ring around what we can expect to achieve through the NATO platform, even though it's been extremely valuable. Thank you. Madam Chairman. Thank you, Senator Van Hollen. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Shaheen. And, and this is a great topic for a hearing. Um, we could spend a lot of time on, on this, and I think a lot of us are very interested in how all this will play out going forward um, in terms of collaboration, coordination between the United States and Europe, as well as uh, others around the world. Mr. Small, uh, I share your concerns with respect to the um, issue of the, you know, the, the partnership for global infrastructure uh, in terms of over-promising and under-delivering. And I do think collectively we've got to figure out a, a strategy there uh, because uh, we do not have the same instruments, policy instruments, financial instruments that, you know, China lays down, which, which also come to great costs for, the, for many of the countries where they, they do those deals. But uh, we've made a collective commitment, I think 600 to $800 billion um, over the next couple of years. And I think we've got to find a way to, to deliver um, on that. Or as you say, other countries, Indonesia, others are going to say, you know, great, great talking points, but no, where's the beef? Um, a couple, I'm going to throw out a couple questions and maybe you can uh, divvy them up based on your uh, particular um, expertise. Um, one relates to the issue of laying down early markers in terms of what kind of economic sanctions uh, China could expect to be imposed if, for example, it crossed uh, the red line and provided lethal assistance uh, to Russia or um, if it took very aggressive action against Taiwan. Uh, there's a major debate. A lot of us believe that sanctions are less useful to punish people after the fact and can play a more important role in terms of signaling in advance what the cost will be. But that, of course, requires putting sanctions out so that China, for example, in this case, would see the real costs, and there are obviously issues there. So my one question is, do you think that Europe and the United States could come to see eye to eye when it comes to laying out that kind of sanctions regime? As you know, Europe has been not like some of our secondary sanction regimes we put in place. One question. Two quick things that came up at the uh, G7. 
um, with respect to a collective strategy to respond to economic coercion uh, by, by China. Um, we saw a number of years ago uh, they punished South Korea when South Korea deployed some important um, you know, anti-air defense systems. Australia's been the victim of coercion, Lithuania. Micron Technologies uh, right now has been hit by China. And so if we're going to collectively, we, in my view, we need a collective strategy for how we're going to respond because otherwise, you know, one country takes the burden of the punishment by itself. And finally, the G7 also talked in very broad terms uh, about uh, an outbound CFIUS which a lot of people have been talking about, limiting investment, especially in those high-end technologies that China could use to advance its military. So, if uh, again, uh, if you could each sort of take a stab at that, I realize we have limited time, so we'll do the best we can. Oh, I'm happy to start. Um, maybe on the Taiwan issue, uh, Rhodium Group and the Atlantic Council are coming out in a couple weeks with uh, a study on this very issue, looking at potential for transatlantic cooperation on sanctions in the Taiwan uh, scenario. I think uh, uh, this is, it, it is absolutely important for the EU and the U.S. to talk about this. I think Yanka mentioned earlier that the discussion in Europe is at a fairly early stage. I think uh, uh, individual member states have been thinking about scenarios. In Brussels, the European Commission has been thinking about this, but there isn't a joined-up uh, approach in Europe on, on Taiwan and possible sanctions. And I think there's also uh, a reluctance to talk about it openly. Uh, there's a great deal of sensitivity around that. And there's uh, a, a reluctance to perhaps provoke a, a crisis by talking about, by talking about sanctions. Um, uh, but the reason why uh, the EU needs to get its head around this, why it needs to sit down with the United States and other allies to talk about it, uh, is that we're not talking about necessarily a black and white scenario, an invasion or not an invasion. We're talking about an escalation ladder, and it could be hybrid, uh, 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 hybrid attacks uh, on critical in infrastructure in Taiwan. It could be the seizure of an, of an island. Uh, uh, it, it, it could be um, a blockade. Uh, and, and coming up with responses to this in real time is going to be uh, extremely difficult. So I think the EU is beginning to realize this. I, I think they're beginning to play through scenarios, but I think it's very important that the EU and the U.S. sit down and talk about this together. Maybe I can add um, a little bit here in terms of the sanctions. I think what um, Andrew has laid out is the European Union and has with its Russia sanctions regime, and we will see the 11th sanctions package coming up, um, laid out the menu. This is what we can do. This is the toolbox. Uh, and I think Beijing has taken note um, that this is now the menu that is available. And that is a menu that is quite striking and very potentially damaging to the Chinese economy. So I, I don't think that it's taken lightly in any kind of way. On the second question regarding the kind of collective strategy to respond to economic coercion, I think we have to be very careful um, about what we are going to see in the future because also from Beijing's side, there's a smartening up about the approach to take and obviously the, the backlash that um, was created in the EU in the Lithuania case was not one that it was particularly useful um, for China. So we have to look, be on the lookout on new strategies and avenues that are being taken, particularly pressuring individual companies, um, because that is then coercion that will be very hard to see 
even for states, um, because companies might swallow it up, might change their behavior without actually even informing governments about this. So I would just like to caution um, against like focusing on only one avenue of economic coercion. China's toolbox is very large in that regard, and there are a lot of opportunities that it will use um, to be, be below the radar there. And um, and the last point on outbound investment screening, I would say, um, it is a real conversation in Europe, um, in all of the capitals that I've spoken to, this is an ongoing conversation. Um, I do not see an EU-level version happening anytime very soon, um, but we have seen on the investment inbound investment screening that um, the EU has basically provided a framework, and then we have individual member state solutions that put this in their own legislative context in the way where it makes sense with their own national legislation, because these are then trade tools or other tools that are being used that have to fit to the respective legislative background that each member state has. So you could probably see, I would think more along that direction than a kind of comprehensive EU system to be developing anytime very soon. Thank you. I would add on sanctions. Um, I think the concern, uh, even for those who want to get the EU in the right place on Taiwan sanctions, is the risk that we end up being precise and underwhelming that the sanctions agreed in advance through a process like this are m less convincing to the Chinese side than a gray zone of uncertainty that I actually think the sanctions that we've put in place on Russia have now created. When you saw Chinese central banking officials scrambling to figure out what the implications would be um, uh, in, in the couple of months after the measures were put in place in Russia, I think we've had some of our effects on the collective transatlantic side with the measures that we've put in place. I think it would be a problem if we ended up agreeing something that looked like a lukewarm package that got pulled apart by certain of the reluctant states, when in reality, if we go into these scenarios, we will go hard and comprehensive on sanctions. Um, and so I, I think there's a challenge in how we calibrate that at the moment. And I know it's an important zone of the discussions at the moment, but there are ways in which we could kind of calibrate that in, in, in the wrong uh, way if we, if we push too hard to get a, a, a sort of minimalist package agreed uh, in advance and signal poorly in the end. Um, on the, uh, just briefly on the, on, on the other points, on um, outbound investment screening and, and some of the anti-coercion work, I think we sometimes have had a bit of a sort of stable door problem um, where we regulate and come up with solutions after the fact and the Chinese side moves into another channel and another direction. Um, I think the helpful thing about the exercise that's being undertaken at the moment on the economic security planning is it's trying to look at this in the round on the European side, trying to look at how you close the gaps across the board, trying to look at the channels across the board. Outbound investment screening is certainly a part of that, um, but when exactly on this issue on, on coercion, as you mentioned with, with Micron and some of the other cases, we're seeing China adapting its tactics already in anticipation of some of these things coming through. We're seeing the squeezes on companies that have been given both inducements and pressures privately, including to go and lobby in Europe at the moment in ways that are putting more pressure on some of these firms than I think we've seen um, in, in the preceding years. So we need to be extremely nimble to adapt to the fact that China is going to adjust around these measures and try and have instruments in place. I think the anti-coercion instrument itself is, is quite a good early example of that, um, but we're, we're, we're going to face this running tactical set of adjustments on, on, on the Chinese um, side on, on, on these areas, and we need to be careful not to be drawn into a multi-year negotiation process on coming up with these instruments, and then the Chinese on the, uh, the flip of a, a coin have moved on and are using getting, getting the same effect through other means. Thank you so much, and thank you, Madam Chair, for your indulgence. Thank you. I actually still have a few questions. Um, so if you all have another round, feel free to, to stay for that. Um, we've talked about the economic um, means by which China 
influences um, countries in Europe, the Belt and Road Initiative, the diplomatic efforts, the coercion. But we haven't really talked about the information space. And one of the areas where I think um, we have seen China in certain places be able to influence outcomes is through disinformation and manipulation of information. How much is, are we seeing that in Europe and how much of a concern is that for EU, for EU and the European countries? I mean, I, I think um, COVID was a bit of a wake-up call um, for the Europeans on disinformation activities and, and information activities across the board from the Chinese side. The structures that have been put in place to address this, particularly at an EU level, were primarily focused on Russia. China had a different set of tactics. It was more about wooing countries than um, hostile information activities um, of a certain sort. We saw that shift at that juncture in ways that um, reflected some tactics that were, were distinct and were more mirroring some of the Russian tactics that we'd seen in the past. Um, I think we saw that particularly in the early stages of the COVID-19 um, uh, pandemic. We saw it with attempts to blame Italy, um, increase tensions between certain member states and the EU. These were the sorts of qualitative activities that were not just about China promotion activities, which we can kind of talk about in a separate category, and were more the kind of um, hostile um, activities of, right. of a different sort that we'd seen. So I think there's been an adjustment to, to, to deal with, with that. It's still of a different nature, I think, from, um, from, from the Russian uh, activities. I think there are points in which the waking up to it in Europe, um, I, I think, has taken place. I think there's still concern that the most successful information activities are taking place um, across uh, the developing world. But there's still a lot of things that we're teasing out. There's now the defense of democracy package that's um, kind of in motion on, on, on the EU side, um, uh, where we've seen, um, you know, program content um, that's been, um, you know, produced by CRI and, and that, 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 you know, it's, it's not labeled, that people are not, um, are not seeing. I, I think there's an attempt to detect and get under this and try and put some, some, some measures um, in, in place. Um, but this is also moving quite, quite rapidly, particularly the question of things like joint activities between China and Russia. At the moment, we're getting a lot of mirroring and mutual promotion. We're not yet seeing kind of full joint activities and joint, um, uh, joint um, uh, information operations being conducted. Conducted, but obviously the, the, the concern is, given the nature of how the relationship is involving, that that's another step that we'll see. But I think others may have, have more to add on the information side. I was hesitating for one moment because this is a very specific field at the moment because it requires very specific knowledge of the respective member states' individual policies. And I know that um, other colleagues, for example, Ivana Karaskova in, in the Czech Republic has done fantastic work on this where they're really trying to map the influence, where they're trying to figure out where this is. And um, this, I think this is what we're seeing very nascently um, in the states that I know more about is an influence on the far right. And I think that is a concerning uh, development that we're seeing the far right and the far left. Um, where we are seeing um, potentially um, greater um, ability of China to influence individual politicians. Um, this is particularly concerning at a time where the far right in many European member states is hitting record numbers because of the way um, the economy is going, because of the war, etc. So I am currently monitoring this more in, for example, eastern Germany, um, looking at what does local influence look like. But this is incredibly complex because of the federal structures mm -hmm. of our systems. It is incredibly complex to actually detect what is going on. Um, so I think it is not a good 
I don't think I can give a good answer that is a very wide sweeping one, but I think one needs to particularly look into the specifics here um, and provide, and I think this is an area where I would call on European governments to provide funding also for this specific research because this has been significantly underdeveloped uh, um, and I think this is an area where Europe itself should spend some money on um, finding out what's going on. How, how much concern is there in Europe that United States policy on China is going to change if there's a new administration? Mr. Barkin. I don't think it's so much concern about U.S.-China policy. I think there's a realization that you, there's quite a bit of consistency, I would say, between uh, the Trump administration and the Biden administration on certain tools uh, that are being used. I think the, the outreach to allies has, has shifted. Um, uh, and of course, we've had a, a, a legislative push, the Chips and Science Act, the IRA uh, here at home. I think there's more concern about uh, in Europe about uh, uh, future administrations perhaps deprioritizing Europe. Uh, there, is, there is certainly concern about that. And that breeds uh, may, you know, if we're talking about the commitment to NATO, uh, there is a debate in Washington about uh, is Ukraine a distraction? Should the U.S. be focusing uh, fully on the Indo-Pacific? So these debates certainly concern uh, uh, people uh, in Europe, uh, and, and I think it, it's, it's important to uh, it's important for administration, well, for the U.S. and the EU to, to sort of. Administration, administration proof their, uh, their relationship. It's important for Europe to, to get assurances uh, from the U.S. that uh, the U.S. will be there, uh, even as it presses Europe to take more responsibility for its own defense. We haven't really talked, we haven't mentioned the word strategic autonomy. Um, I think strategic autonomy is a, is, is a term that arose during the Trump administration because Europe felt it was being pushed into policy decisions it didn't uh, it, that weren't in its interests. Um, now it has become the, uh, the favorite term of the, the, the Chinese officials because it implies distance to the U.S. Um, but when it comes to Europe doing more uh, for itself, I, I think that is in U.S. interests. Um, it's in European interests. I think Ukraine has kind of opened a lot of eyes in that respect. And uh, where we all live in Berlin, we've had some major changes in terms of investment in the military, uh, et cetera. So this, this is a debate that is, that is moving. It's moving slowly. And I think uh, the US needs to uh, certainly encourage Europe to do more and not, not worry about these labels, strategic autonomy. This all needs to happen. Uh, uh, greater investment in, in Europe's own defense needs to happen in coordination with the US and allies, of course. Well, I, I certainly think there's a great deal of bipartisan interest in seeing all of the NATO countries meet their 2% of GDP and, and that that is reinforced on a regular basis yeah. um, by not just members of the administration, but by members of Congress. So I would agree with that. I, I just have a final question, um, and I don't know that we know the answer to this yet, but I would think that as as Europeans are watching the war in Ukraine, that the, the blowing up of the dam and the subsequent flooding, the environmental impact, the potential of that to affect the Zaporizhia power plant, the, the implications for a broader Europe, 
um, have to give people pause and put more pressure on concern about the relationship between China and Russia. Is it too early to know what, what the impact of that's going to be, or are we already hearing a reaction to that? I think it's too early, and I do think that um, the Chinese government has managed relatively carefully in the last few months to kind of put enough distance or enough doubt or enough smoke bombs around the relationship to have not a very clear connection to any of these activities. The Chinese government put out, or the Chinese uh, newspapers put out a statement about kind of saying, oh, great concern about the environmental impact, about um, the impact of, uh, of the dam breaking clearly not pointing fingers at whose responsibility it was. We saw the Global Times with that this morning. So I think there is a, a clever play as well at hand there. Um, I just wanted to, um, coming back to the, to the last question, just really briefly give you the figure that we have from today, which was um, that the, the question that we polled in the 11 countries, whether um, Europe can rely on the future of the US being there to defend and whether it needs its own defense capabilities in comparison to 2020, where 66% of respondents said that we're now at 74% of Europeans saying Europe needs its own defences and needs to spend more. If that is not a public mandate also, I think, for governments to actually act, um, then I don't know what kind of majority um, governments would want. So I just wanted to add that because I do think it is important to see um, that this is not something that is, um, would be much against European public opinion in that regard. Good. Thank you. Senator Ricketts. Great. Thank you, Madam Chairman. So in April, Airbus agreed to build a second assembly line for the A320 in the People's Republic of China and was given the green light by Beijing to move forward with a previously announced 160-plane order. Um, this, was made, this agreement was made by Airbus CEO, this Airbus CEO, who was a part of the economic delegation that went with President Macron to Beijing. And uh, soon after the visit, Airbus also agreed to sell 50 H160 Airbus helicopters uh, to the Chinese firm GDAT. Uh, like airplanes, helicopters are inherently dual use, um, you know, in their nature. And there's already a history of French civilian helicopters and derivatives thereof ending up in the PLA's modern day attack helicopter, you know, uh, equipment. So I guess my question, and then uh, I got another thing. According to a report from the Horizon Advisory, Airbus-China engagement entails significant ties to China's military and military-civil fusion apparatus, including the form, in the form of supply dependencies, technology sharing, and research and development cooperation. And, of course, we know that in the People's Republic of China, there's no secrets. They are taking every bit of uh, intellectual property they have. So, Mr. Barkin, how do you square the circle on this, that... We're talking about de-risking, and yet Airbus goes forward with a deal like this. How, how, how do we, how, what are we supposed to think about this in the United States? Uh, yes, I mean, it's a good question. We, uh, I've written about this. Um, uh, I think uh, the decision to sell the helicopters raised some eyebrows, even in the uh, uh, French establishment. Um, I think Europe is uh, at the beginning of a debate about uh, exports of uh, dual use, of mil the military-civil fusion uh, practices in China. This is going to be part of the de-risking debate, and I think it's probably going to be the most uh, difficult part, because I think there will be uh, some uh, resistance in, in, in certain European capitals, this is about export controls. This is about outbound uh, investment screening. So I would say that 
without commenting on that individual deal, I would say we still have uh, some work to do in Europe on in getting our heads around uh, uh, what technologies, uh, where to draw the line, where the red lines are in the technology relationship with China. And I think that is uh, explicitly what uh, von der Leyen said in her speech. We need to develop our own approach to this. We need to be able to sit down with the U.S. and discuss common approaches. So I think this is all going to play out in the, in, the, in the coming months in the EU debate. Uh, but I would agree that there have been deals in the past that have, that have raised some eyebrows. So, Dr. Earl, you were talking earlier about how when European leaders get together and say, hey, this is what we want, like PRC, don't sell weapons to, to Russia, that it moves public opinion. Doesn't this deal do just the opposite when you see a big European, you know, this is a flagship European country, company, and it's being endorsed by, you know, President Macron. Doesn't this send the opposite direction? I mean, doesn't this make it harder to move public opinion and, and help the public understand the risks associated with the PRC when we see big European companies make this deal? Yeah, clearly the Airbus case, um, from a German perspective at least, is not seen in the area of military enable, uh, enabling. It's seen as purely commercial deals. It is sold as such. It is communicated as such. Um, I don't know if you followed the, the news reporting over the last few days, but I do think there's some digging going on on many areas around the relationships, also in the German media. So we had seven German Air Force pilots that were identified as after retirement training PLA officers um, in actually acquiring capabilities of um, also you know, strategic capabilities of not only flying an aircraft but also using it for its purposes. This has created quite some backlash in the debates here. So I would also trust on um, European media to dig up these cases and understand more clearly um, that there is always a relationship also to the military aspects of this and in a nascent state of growing security concerns. And we're in the nascent state of growing security concerns in Europe about, um, about the, the role that China plays. Um, this can actually make a huge difference. But we're not in the zone yet where this is seen as clearly we cannot do that. Obviously, no commercial aircraft could be sold. And then the question would obviously also be, and does Boeing not sell any aircraft to China anymore? Where is the kind of, where's the competition aspect here? Where, do we, where does this leave us? I mean, that's, this is a very, I think I would be very careful um, in making cases around that because this is not clearly not seen in that area yet on the European side. So, I'm sorry. So, I guess by your answer, I'm not quite clear. Do you think it makes it easier to talk to European populations about the risks that PRC poses when deals, or are you, are you saying it doesn't make a difference right now because they don't see this as being military? At the moment, this doesn't make a difference because this is clearly seen as a commercial activity um, in enabling Chinese commercial aircraft, and kind of this is seen in the clearly in the realm of um, non-problematic engagement. Okay. All right, thank you. Well, thank you very much, Senator Ricketts. Um, I want to again thank our panel for traveling all the way from Berlin to join us and um, for your excellent testimony. We are going to keep the record of this hearing open until close of business Friday, June 9th. Um, and again, thank you to Senator Ricketts. At this time, the subcommittee hearing on Europe will come to a close. <laughs>